Lowell, can you present your patient? Okay. This is a 70-year-old white female who I saw on January 2nd of 2008 for the first time. She was referred in from one of the pain management doctors. This is certainly pain management's an increasing field, and we're getting more patients with both this type of malignancy and lung cancers and things that are caught accidentally by the pain management doctors, as I think a lot of the internists now are sending patients who have chronic back pains and things out to the pain management doctor. So this she was found to have an abnormal x-ray, and the pain management doctor found her to be anemic also and to have some renal insufficiency and sent her over to see us. So she was quite ill when we first saw her. She also had an open bed sore in the back and really had been become just progressively bedbound over the last month or two. She had on admission to the hospital, I admitted her to the hospital since she looked quite ill at that time. She had a calcium of 11.3. A hemoglobin about 10.7, a creatinine of 3.5. She had just a trace of monoclonal protein in her serum. She had about 8 grams per 24 hours of monoclonal protein, lambda, light chain in the urine, had multiple lytic lesions on her bone survey films, and had a bone marrow which was about 75% infiltrated with plasma cells. Fortunately, her bone marrow cytogenetics was not available since it was lost by the lab or not appropriately done, and I've not repeated her bone marrow since she had a nice response to treatment at this point. So when we first saw her, we gave her intravenous fluids and started her on dexamethasone IV. Her renal function very rapidly improved. We also had her seen by a wound care specialist. Interestingly, the wound care specialist in our hospital is a myeloma survivor who underwent transplant a few years ago and is doing well. So he, it was good mentally for her to see a long-term myeloma survivor, and he's very open about his disease process and what he's gone through. So she rapidly improves in the hospital for about a week overall. For the first month or two, we just treated her with steroids because she was still quite immobile but got better pretty quickly. Her renal function also greatly improved. The creatinine came down to less than two. And at that point, I started her on Revdex, interesting to our previous conversations, at a reduced dose. I believe we started her on about 10 milligrams of Revlimid at the start. And she's had a very dramatic response to that, has been in a near-complete remission at this point, now about 15 months later. So she's been maintained also on pimidronate uh, approximately monthly, and her performance status has greatly improved. She's now ambulatory, essentially no bone pain. And what kind of thrombosis prevention in her? Glad you asked. She got aspirin at the start. It did develop a DVT, just a leg DVT, about six weeks into her treatment. has been on Coumadin since that time. Six weeks after the lenalidomide? Or the... No, six weeks after she got the start of the lenalidomide, yes. So Where was the thrombosis? It was popliteal. So it was minimally symptomatic. I think at this point, she definitely had some risk factors. So if I had the case to do over again, I would have put her on, I think, full-dose anticoagulation early on since she was elderly, newly diagnosed, and not very ambulatory at the time that we started her. So, so she's remained on Coumadin at this point and is doing quite well. So, Bob, your thoughts about this case and also the issue of therapy in the non-transplant candidate? Well, the folks that are not transplant candidates, especially the older patients, unfortunately have benefited a little bit less from some of the novel agents, but even in those groups, we're making some inroads, and I think that this case is a very interesting one. First, I would say that 
at least at some centers, especially with what sounds like an improvement in her creatinine as well as performance status, this would be somebody who would still be a potential candidate for transplant if that was something that she and her family were interested in thinking about. And again, with the issue earlier about stem cell mobilization, it might be good to at least have her have that discussion earlier rather than later, because the longer she stays on a Revlimid-based combination, the more difficult it may be to mobilize some stem cells. 70 years old? Well, we at MD Anderson have transplanted people up into the low 80s, and their outcome, if you adjust for things like cytogenetics and ISS stage, doesn't seem to be substantively different from the outcome of younger patients. So you have to be very selective, because if you have a 50-year-old, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're a transplant candidate if they have horrible diabetes and coronary artery disease and multiple comorbid medical features. But for the older patients that we see who go to transplant, they do fairly well. And the nice thing is that we still feel that transplant has a role to play in prolonging time to progression and progression-free survival and probably overall survival as well. Now, the question that comes up often in these patients is if you get into a near-complete remission like her or a complete remission, what is the right thing to do? Should they have their therapy stopped? Should they continue at some low dose? And unfortunately, none of the studies that are ongoing that we have data from have looked at randomizing, for example, people in CR or near CR to get either observation with full dose REV as an example at the time of relapse versus low dose REV continuously until relapse and then high dose REV because the main issues are not just time to progression and progression-free survival, but it's sensitivity of the disease to some kind of salvage therapy at the time of relapse. In the absence of that data, what most people do is to continue them on some lower dose, and what I typically will do, especially if they're not tolerating their steroids too well, is I tend to stop the dexamethasone and keep them on some low dose of single-agent Revlimid as a maintenance. Is that the right thing to do? I'm not sure, but I think it's what most people in the field and in practice are doing. Other options that could have been considered for her would have been something like melphalanprednisone and thalidomide, which has now been shown in two studies to be superior to MP, which maybe years ago would have been what we used for a patient like this. Although it's also important to note that there are now a total of five studies of MP. MPT versus MP, and only two of them are positive, favoring MPT, both of them from France. So if you're in other countries, who knows? Now, there are some methodologic differences between them that could explain that, but I think the MPT story is not as clear as it was at the beginning with the two IFM trials. And then another option, especially with her renal function, would have been VMP, which has been shown to be superior to MP as well. 
Melphalan, I probably would have dose adjusted in her if I had used it, given her creatinine of 3.5. But that's also a fairly well tolerated regimen and gives probably the highest complete response rate, anywhere from 30 to 35 percent, depending on the criteria that you use. Are there any biologic reasons to think that you would induce resistance by continuously using a proteasome inhibitor or does that question come up? There definitely are because at least in the laboratory, maybe in patients as well, the best way to induce resistant cell lines, for example, which is what we do in the lab all the time to study pathways of resistance is to expose cells to a just sub-lethal dose of the drug, wait until they become resistant, increase the drug levels further, and keep ratcheting it up. And eventually you arrive at cells that are tenfold to more resistant compared to the drug-naive cells. So I think that there's a very real concern that if you continue on maintenance therapy at the time of progression, you're going to have disease that's less sensitive to whatever drug it was that you used in maintenance. Now, fortunately, we've got lots of options these days, and so if this patient relapses three years down the road with Revlimid as a single-agent maintenance, then you might be able to stop the Revlimid and switch to a Velcade-based combination, or you might be able to just add Velcade, or we may have even newer drugs. I think probably two of the more exciting drugs these days, there's Carfilzomib, which is a second-generation proteasome inhibitor that has much less neuropathy associated with it than does Velcade, interestingly. And then there's also pomalidomide, which is the next immunomodulatory drug in line for development, which seems to be probably is very little data, so I'm sort of sticking my neck out. But it seems to be more active even than Revlimid and does seem to work in people who are Revlimid refractory. You mentioned stem cell collection. What do we know right now today about that as it relates to these agents? We know from studies of Velcade-based inductions that Velcade doesn't seem to significantly compromise stem cell mobilization, collection, and recovery after transplant, and that's from the Gemema study that Michele Cavo presented and also from Jean-Luc Harrisot's IFM data. They were able to collect basically the same number of stem cells from patients, whether they got VTD or Thaldex, or the other study was Velcade-Dex versus VAD. As far as Revlimid is concerned, there is some anecdotal published data in small case series that suggest that if you have patients on for extended periods of time, extended being up to a year or more, you can compromise stem cell mobilization. But if you, as we mentioned before, chemomobilize or use plerixifor or mozabil, you can probably overcome that. And in some places, what they're doing as well is just doing the mobilization and collection earlier. So after three or four cycles, and then continuing patients on their Revlimid-based therapy. And those are the two main drugs that we're using. Thalidomide doesn't seem to compromise stem cell function. Early on, there was one report about a question of more thrombocytopenia, but that wasn't really borne out. 
just wonder, we're talking about stem cell collection for later use. Just in the practical sense, is that getting done very much either at Anderson or other places? Because it's one of these things that I hear talked about a lot with the newer drugs, but I wonder how often, I've not really done that in our practice, and I don't know how often it's getting done around the country that people are harvesting. Our insurance will pay for that for later use, or is it difficult? Well, we see a different patient population than what you have in your practice. But at least from our patients' perspective, there are very few in whom insurance is a hindrance to doing a collect-and-store approach. But that certainly isn't the case everywhere, and Medicare can be an issue in that regard. There are some differences state to state, so you'd have to look into whether that's a possibility from where you practice. I should, if you don't mind, mention one other thing. One of the things that we've always debated in myeloma is this all the drugs up front versus a sequential type approach. And in the past, there have been some people like the Arkansas folks who tried to use everything up front and others who felt that using two drugs and keeping two or three for later use because we weren't curing anybody was the right approach. And I would say that we still don't know the answer to that question. And so either approach is very reasonable. But there is now emerging data from a number of studies. A lot of it is in the non-transplant patient population. But for example, the Hewlin IFM study, which was the over 75 MP versus MPT trial, they looked at post-progression survival in those patients. And you might suspect that maybe the people who got MP would do better post-progression because they'd be less beaten up and more able to receive salvage chemotherapy. But in fact, what was found is that the post-progression survival was identical in the two arms. One has to be careful about trying to interpret that because the protocol didn't mandate what therapy they got post-progression. So it was up to every investigator and every physician's own choice and discussions with the patients. But data like that mirror what was found in the VISTA trial, the VMP versus MP, where at progression, the response rates, which is all we have right now, we don't have durability, but the response rates in salvage were pretty similar whether you had MP or VMP as an induction. And then there was the SWOG study, or I think it was an ECOG trial, which looked at REV high-dose DEX versus high-dose DEX, which was closed early but still randomized about 100 people to both arms. And for the people who got high-dose DEX as an induction that had a suboptimal response, they could have Revlimid added. And what they found is that adding the Revlimid did improve the response rate, but not to the level as if you had RevDEX to start with. And this kind of data, to me, argues that your best shot at this disease, as is the case in other diseases, is up front, and that maybe this sequential approach is less beneficial because by the time the disease relapses, you have so many chemotherapy resistance mechanisms that are activated in these myeloma cells that your ability to impact on the disease at that point is much less. For example, there's a number of Velcade plus something versus Velcade studies in the relapsed setting. 
my guess is that they're probably all going to be like the Velcade Doxel nine-ish month time to progression. I would be surprised if any of them showed a dramatically greater TTP because I just think that in the relapse setting, the disease is that much more difficult.